Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast. I have the absolute pleasure of having Fritz Van Passion to my podcast today. And he is a seasoned global executive and the author of the new book, The Disruptors Feast. His 30 years of experience inside global companies has afforded him a unique perspective on the current trends that are impacting business around the world. He served as the CEO of Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Before that, he spent three years as CEO at Coors Brewing Company. He's also held several management positions at Nike, becoming the president of Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Prior to working for Nike, he worked in finance in Disney's consumer products division. And while he has a long history of executive roles, his career began in management consulting at the Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey. And I am thrilled to have him. Welcome, Fritz. Thank you, Tiffany. It's great to be on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and I have to say, I just love all of the places you have previously worked because I think it is just so appropriate for not only your book, The Disruptor's Feast, but this conversation today. I'm really excited. But before we get started, I like to begin my podcast with something I call bullish and bearish. And it's just a quick way for me to just kind of ask some fun questions and get your off-the-cuff res- uh, you know, responses on whether you agree with it or, or disagree with it. You ready? I am. All right. So the sharing economy, sharing full-time employees across different companies to fix demand. I'm bullish. I think that various forms of having flexible workforces and people working across companies in different situations is something we will see a lot more of. Excellent. The next one is automobiles booking hotel rooms. Bearish. I think... (laughs) People will book rooms. That's the, the cars won't be sleeping there. Yeah, I was sort of thinking like you're on a ro- long road trip and the car knows you've been driving too long, so it suggests you know a hotel close by and then books it for you. Uh, yeah, I think that there are so many ways to book a room. Uh, the car should be focusing on driving for you while you're <laughs> and examining whether the reviews and the pictures are appealing to you. And and why would you trust your car to that important decision? Yeah, yeah. Alrighty. The next one is uh, 3D printed shoes in real time at retail stores or at home. Uh, bullish in, in limited fashion. So I think that there will be people in places where that happens, particularly for uh, athletes as they age, the various things they need in a shoe, I think, can be particularly matched by, by 3D printing. But I don't think it's for everybody. Well, good. You know, I wanted to try to keep it close to you, right? So, you know, hotels, shoes, Nike, Starwood. So, th- you know, thank you for uh, for indulging me on that. I appreciate it. I still check out shoes when I walk through airports. It's it's something you don't lose. <laughs> yeah, that's like me when I walk through airports. I, I start going, God, you know, I wouldn't have put that end cap there. I would have done it over here. My marketing and sales mind starts spinning and then I have to walk out. You know, otherwise you start talking to yourself. It's never good. <laughs> So let's let's begin. Uh, you know, I I get often asked, uh, and when we met, uh, you know, a month or two ago in New York, um, you spent a little bit of time sort of defining disruption, and and I wanted to start there because I think that everybody has a different 
understanding or different definition of disruption. And I'd love to hear how you define it. Yeah, sure. So in a business sense, it's when you or your company wake up and you realize you're really in trouble. And, and the source of that problem for you, you either didn't see coming or saw coming and didn't do something about it. Typically, disruptors will have a different economic model. They have a, a, a different way of getting to market. They do something that you're not structurally set up to do. So that's, that's disruption from where I sit. Yeah, and I, would you agree that there's now this varying speed of disruption happening, that it's not happening at sort of at the same pace everywhere? Not only is it at, at varying speed in different places, I think it's just faster overall. I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the last century, disruption could have happened over a period of decades. I think we're seeing that time frame being worn down to years, if not months in some cases. So it's not only at different speeds, it's much, much faster than it ever was before. Yeah, I think there was a bunch of uh, you know images floating around and lots of articles about how fast it took people to adopt fifty million people to adopt you know the television and the telephone and cars, et cetera. And it was you know four or five decades, you know, then it was three decades, two decades, you know, t- and then ten years. And you could look at Angry Birds; it was like forty-five days or something to fifty million users. So you know, the speed is is definitely accelerating, as you just said. Right. And I think that's a function, A, of, of the ex- extraordinary access that you all have now through, uh, through the web. But also, I think that uh, many of the barriers to entry that existed because of networks in the past that were physical are now no longer that important. So as, as a retailer, for example, having a thousand stores today is probably as much a liability uh, as it ever was a barrier to entry when, when the only way your competitors could come after you was to open their own thousand stores. Yeah, and what do you think about speaking of stores and opening? You know, what do you think about this movement lately? You know, of people who used to say, "Okay, well, retail is dead," quote unquote. I say that in quotes, uh, and online is the place to go. And you see retail establishments closing, and you see online establishments opening storefronts. So, you know, one trying to chase the other in their sort of, you know, sandbox, which being online. And then you have online going to retail storefronts. What do you, what do you think is going on there? Well, so, I mean, first of all, I think that one of the issues in the U.S. is uh, we're an economy that is just overstored. And, and even if there weren't a secular decline in, in retail traffic, uh, there would be, I think, uh, continued pretty bitter competition among stores. So part of the demise of retail, as people see it, I think, is just the fact that we have to consolidate space. Um, but to the broader point, what I think is happening with with this retail dynamic is not dissimilar to what we've seen with technology overall. And if you go back to the first internet bubble, it was really about purely digital companies taking on uh, retailers in, in the classic sense. And I think that in so many different ways, we're seeing this interesting integration now between digital and real world, right? And so, uh, for example, if you look at Airbnb, it is a network of locations and, and physical places. The digital aspect is simply a way of giving people access and understanding and information both ways from sellers to buyers. But it's not a purely digital business. It's a physical business uh, that is enabled by new digital capabilities. And I think in the same way, Formerly pure digital players are, are now looking at some amount of retail as a way of showcasing product, learning consumers, uh, getting interaction, which is still not possible uh, online or through other interaction. Yeah, it, it, what's fascinating for me to talk to you really, and why I wanted to, is 
you know, people will say all the time, oh, you know, you have to be careful of disruption before you're Uberized, you know, or Airbnb'd. And you were the CEO of Starwood between 2007 and 2015. And if any CEO in this world has lived through disruption, the Airbnb impact to your business, I think there's nobody that will know it better than you, I might might add, right? So what did you learn through that based on what you've just said? You know, what was it that while the market was saying, oh, this is the demise of the traditional, quote unquote, right, hotel room uh, and the way that consumers may, uh, you know, find and consume and book, et cetera. And you were right smack dab in the middle of some one of these first unicorns coming at an industry that people now reference as being disrupted. Yeah. And look, I think that's a, a question that can be answered on, on a bunch of different levels. So let me take a couple. The first would be, uh, what what I what I saw was consistent with the pattern of disruption that you see uh, throughout time. So, and that is, disruption tends to start at the low end, look a little bit awkward, seem like at the fringe of business. Uh, the the incumbent players tend to disregard the the threat. And what I'm thinking about here is, you know, think about Japanese cars in the 70s and uh, and and their quality level and and perception. And you know, fast forward to a Lexus today. Um, the same thing happened with steel mini mills and, and big foundry uh, steel companies where they thought, oh, these guys can just make low-end steel. They're not a threat. And of course, you know, it was an existential problem for the, for the large foundry steel companies. And, and Airbnb, I think, similarly came in and a lot of executives said, oh, well, hey, this is just for leisure travelers. It's, you know, you know who wants to worry about the, the cat and the, where the key's hidden and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think what we realize is that uh, disruptive ways of doing business tend to move up market over time. And, and, I, and that's exactly what I think you know, Airbnb has, has done and will continue to do. And, and I think what we'll see are more uh, hybrid products that look something like Airbnb, but also maybe a bit more like a hotel at the same time. And, I'm, and what I'm thinking here is you know, even potentially purpose-built uh, real estate with the purpose of having a, you know, a staff light or staff absent um, hospitality experience and what feels more like a, a dwelling than, than a hotel room. Um, the, the thing that I think the hotel industry also learned from, from Airbnb is that travelers really are tired of having mindless consistency and, and generic uh, lodging product. And, and we all travel enough now that the idea that you know, you're going to get a clean, quiet, safe room somewhere is just you know, table stakes. And you know, having a design a theme that makes a hotel seem like a Westin, but doesn't give you a sense of place or authenticity just isn't enough anymore. So, uh, you know, I think that the hotel business will become better because of what Airbnb has trained travelers to be able to expect. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more, right? I think I often say that customer experience is the new battleground and experience is the new product. And I think that's what you were just pointing out. Yeah. And I'd even go a step further than that. I mean, the reality is today, you know, travel is still inconvenient. I mean, who hasn't waited in an unnecessarily line, unnecessary line the last time they went traveling? It's, it's anonymous. People don't know who you are or what you really want. Um, and it's uncertain, meaning I can look at reviews for a thousand people on a, on a restaurant or a hotel or an attraction, but I don't know if those people are like me. And so, you know, there's still so many pain points in the travel experience that, that there's so much opportunity for new ideas and disruption. And yeah, I think that that experience aspect in, in the travel sense is absolutely the battleground. And, and I think that extends to other business models as well. 
And so if you take that one step further and you say, okay, so, you, you know, you made the comment just a minute or two ago that there was a lot that the hospitality industry could learn from Airbnb. You know, there's a lot that other industries can learn from Airbnb, not just in same industry, because I think people get caught there that they only want to stay within their own industry to learn. And I think that in today's you know world, especially of all these disruptive companies, you can learn from multiple industries. So that's sort of one comment. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think there are always parallels here. So, you know, if you look at office space today and, you know, the idea that you've got a, a you know, a high-end uh, commercial office building somewhere where every floor and every business has a boardroom that they use, you know, about five hours a month, you know, why not create mini conference centers for people to be able to pool that real estate in a way that's uh, seamless and, 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 and convenient in a way that, you know, just using that same space is, is, is so much more expensive today. So, you know, the lessons of combining uh, a, a software front end to a physical asset, uh, better asset utilization, uh, training people to share things in a way that doesn't feel inconvenient, weird, or um, uh, uncomfortable, I think are all lessons that we're going to see pervade from, from one industry to another. And so if you take those lessons, so if you say, you know what, we learned something from it. And, you know, as sitting in the CEO of a, you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, multinational global brand such as Starwood, how do you pull your team together? And what are the steps that you took in order to get them to embrace this disruption and not be afraid of it? First stop, you know, second being, okay, now that we understand what this all means what is our kind of what is our monday morning action item right what are we going to start doing differently because of what we've learned from these disruptors it doesn't need to just be airbnb uh, airbnb so so how did you get the troops sort of rallied around the next phase uh, of of business whether it whether it's nike or Coors or you know starwood when when something like this happens what's yeah, the, sort of the, your game plan the straightforward way to think about this is at some point, you have to be able to communicate to your organization, hey, folks, this is what's happening in the world. This is what it means for our company. And here's what I need from you. Here's what we need from each other in order for us to be able to succeed. So uh, in order to do that, I had to go deeper into what I understood was happening uh, from a disruption perspective, meaning I look at it as really being threefold. One is disintermediation, people coming between you and your customers. Think the online travel agencies getting between hotel companies and, and guests. Uh, the second is disintegration, which is all the little piece parts of what we as a hotel company bundled together to sell to hotel owners who were paying us fees uh, to, to franchise or to manage their hotels. Um, and you know there are all kinds of little startups doing everything from revenue management to optimization to you know, the biggest one being TripAdvisor, which was really replacing the signaling value of brands, which of course was a big part of the bundle. And the third piece is, is asset utilization, you know, not just Airbnb and peer-to-peer -peer lodging, but also Hotel Tonight and different ways to fill rooms that didn't exist before. And, 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 and making a story out of that disruption and, uh, you know, as, as Napoleon Bonaparte once said, it's really about defining reality and giving hope. So there was a defining reality piece to this. But then there was also a point at which we said, look, th this doesn't mean game over for us, right? We have so many natural advantages here, but we have to play to our strengths and we have to adapt and adopt new things. So, for example, we went from being a real estate company to being a branded franchiser and manager of hotels to what I believed uh, had to be a platform 
to be able to deliver uh, great hospitality to guests who were high-frequency travelers. And so using the SPG lo uh, loyalty program to make sure that people felt special and recognized, not just at their hotels they went to often, but anywhere across the system. So they would go out of their way to choose us, which again went back to the reason why hotel owners would want to keep paying us. Yeah, and so I'm going to guess that when you kind of sat down and had this conversation around those three things, right? Disintermediation, disintegrations, asset utilization, your executives are all nodding their head, I'm guessing. I'm talking about sort of your executive team as you as you were sitting having these meetings um, on what, how are we going to respond and what are we going to do? And how was the res response? You know, I often hear that you have culture as one of the biggest hurdles for actual innovation and responding to disruption is kind of that cultural inertia of the DNA. We've always done it this way. We're not going to do it a different way. And so did you have kind of different responses from various leaders? Let's say your leadership team was 10 or 15 big. I'm talking about your direct reports, right? 10 or 15 big. Were all of them on board, half of them a third? And what did that look like culturally? I, well, I think that intellectually, most of them were on board. Uh, emotionally, I think there was a real spectrum of uh, embracing what was to come. And I think that we have um, so programmed ourselves to be successful in the way that we've been successful that, that redefining what has to get done is a very uncomfortable thing for even very smart, very successful adults who, uh, who are competent and, and would seem like they are willing to embrace change because we really were talking about very different ways of selling, um, going back to our store, our, our hotels and telling them there had to be a different way to manage check-in because if we were going to keyless everywhere, we couldn't solve the implementation of that 1,200 different unique times. We had to have standard approaches to be able to roll out quickly. And so uh, one of the ways, frankly, that worked best to try to get the mindset was to engage the senior leadership team in a roadshow where we would talk about what was happening and what we were doing and what each function uh, saw as their role in making that and affecting that change. And, and frankly, getting people to say on stage in front of their peers and their reports uh, what they're committing to is a great way of getting buy-in. I, I agree. Uh, you know, and I, I'm going to park that one for just a second because you said two really great things in there. So I think the emotional side and the uh, logical side are two very different things. And as a leader, how do you manage that, right? Because everyone, like like I'm guessing, right, we're nodding their head, like instinctively as leaders at that level, sitting on your executive team of, of Starwood, uh, they get it, right? I mean, they get it. It's the, it's the emotional side of things of, well, you know, we've always used keys. I mean, it's a, a sort of sidebar for a second, but, you know, people joke about how much I travel, and I'm sure you travel as much as I do. And, um, I did this. I, well, I guess this isn't a good thing to say if people listen to this because I know I'm not supposed to do it, but it is what it is. Uh, I keep my hotel keys uh, and I don't keep them because I'm worried about, you know, the magnetic strip with all my information. I keep them because I actually have O-rings hanging in my office and I have 15 years of hotel room keys. <laughs> and it's just to remind me I've been a lot of places, <laughs> you know, and I've done a lot of things. And it's just kind of like, you know, it's it's like this very quiet badge of honor or not, right? Um, but even something as simple as I have some rings that have full physical keys, like not even the magnetic. 
and and then I have you know these new other kinds of keys. So I almost have this entire innovation curve <laughs> of hotel room keys over the last 15 years of what has happened. It's it's funny, but we're we're sort of stuck in the now standard one. Um, but how do they emotionally, and how did you help them? And then did you ever face executives that were not actually willing to make the change, which meant you had to make a change? Well, absolutely on the, on that last part. But um, you know, I, I, look, I think there's a few different things that are going on here. In in any organization, there are there are three kinds of barriers to change. Uh, the first is just self-interest. There are people who realize hey, if we do that, my job goes away or my job changes in a way that I don't want it to. So I'm going to find ways to, 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 to slow this down or to be passive aggressive about how I prevent it from rolling out. Uh, the second is, and this is the trickier one, is cognitive bias, right? I mean, we seek confirmation of what we believe. We tend to believe what our peers tell us. Uh, we overestimate our ability and capacity to know and do things. And, and all of those, I think, lead to a certain amount of change blindness. And then finally... The, um, the, 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 the last piece of this is companies are set up with processes and performance measures and uh, promotions that are all about the way we've done things. And so undoing all of those things in any organization is a massive effort. And it really requires uh, you know, some top-down directive leadership. It, talk, it requires uh, being graphic and appealing to people and, and reminding people what the actual mission of the company is and how... Uh, that mission could be thwarted. Uh, it it re requires finding peers that are forward thinking to lead other peers along. Uh, and it also, you know, interestingly, uh, and I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself here just a bit, but people aren't fundamentally against change, but they're against change when they don't feel like they have control. And they're against change when they feel like it's not sort of doesn't sit well with them spiritually. And, and I use those two examples because as consumers, we love innovation, right? And we love it because, hey, if I don't like the innovative product, I'll go back to the old one, right? And, and one of the things we don't love about, you know, our, our iPhone uh, updates is sometimes they change the product in a way we don't like and we can't go back. And I think <laughs> right. that's sort of the difference between being a consumer and saying, hey, look, I'll try that new, uh, you know, frost brew liner on that beer can. And if I don't like it, I'll go back to the old one. Right. Um, and the other piece is, you know, what I remind people is, look, revolutionaries are willing to die for their changes. Right. So, you know, when you feel like there's a real sense of purpose, you're, you know, completely committed to change. And so the key is, how do you create some of that sense of control and sense of mission across an organization? Yeah. And I think that that is that is a that's a challenge. Right. I think. Do you. Well, let me ask, do you, do you think that there is a difference between how people respond to change uh, when a company is smaller, sort of in a startup mode, because I know that you've been sort of at very big brands of recent, right? But sort of small brand, scrappy brand versus medium-sized, large, big brand, do you think there's a difference in response or do you think just human nature, regardless of size company, is always going to come into play? No, I think that, that there is a, there's some kind of relationship between size and by the way, breadth of an organization or spread of an organization. So having, as we did, you know, 240,000 people working in 1,200 hotels and in more than 100 countries uh, makes it harder to get everybody in, you know, the conference room on a Friday and have the founder talk to, you know, three-fourths of the company about what we're going to do differently next week. And so, you know, you do have to orchestrate differently. There are more legacy systems, and I mean that both in the in the IT sense, but also in the 
you know, hey, I've, I've been running hotels for 20 years. Don't tell me how to do that. I've always been able to do that my own way, and I like how I do it. And, and so, yeah, I think that small and new, when it comes to change, have, as, as companies, have huge advantages uh, over old and large. Yeah, and, and so I, I love that because I think that there is this interesting dynamic happening of this battle between big brands and their smaller, more nimble competitors via social channels. So I'm going to pivot away from sort of hospitality for a second, and I'm going to go towards uh, your your time at Coors maybe, and just from a beer perspective, it doesn't need to specifically be about Coors, but thinking about how these big beers are competing against the craft market, just the craft breweries, especially in their marketing. You see a lot of them saying, look, we think we're competing on what our beer cans look like. Oh, yeah, no question about it. And I think the beer industry is an interesting one because, uh, you know, the, the brewing and distributing process for beer really can't change that much unless you want to change the product. I mean, you can't download a beer, right? So, uh, you know, there's something fundamental to a big part of that business system that, that it won't change, obviously, in any way that I can imagine. But, of course, that doesn't mean it never will. Um, but, you know, so at Coors, one of the things we did is we created our own craft. And, you know, our fastest growing brand was Blue Moon. And no one, well, no one, most people didn't know that that was one of our products. And, you know, we were careful even to change the fine print on the bottle to say the Blue Moon Brewing Company, not uh, a subsidiary somehow of, of Coors Brewing Company. And... You know, sometimes the best way to deal with disruption in that way is to is to disrupt back. And, uh, you know, because historically the, the beer business was defined by, you know, scale and marketing because you can do more sponsorship and more ads and, uh, you know, there's scale and distribution. So the bigger you get, the more profitable you get. And, you know, what happened was, you know, so much of the market was dominated by a few brands and, and they became less interesting. And, you know, that was really, I think, a, a, a ground for... Uh, a place for for new products and flavors and and looks to come on the market because we've got tired of the same thing. Yeah, one of my previous guests, uh, Whitney Johnson, she's, she's got a book really out about disrupting yourself. And if you're not willing to just, you know, the first thing you have to do is disrupt yourself. And I think that that example you just gave is, you know, you're either going to be disrupted or be the disruptor. And in that case, you weren't trying to necessarily go out and disrupt the small breweries. You were trying to disrupt yourself to say, look, if there's a 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever the numbers are, uh, I think now in the brew is is somewhere around, you know, still 15% or something of the overall market. But, you know, even if it's a percent or two, you can capture in that brew uh, the craft category on your own and not give it to them. And, and it may take something off the shelf of your traditional brand. You'd rather keep it, right? Yes, and I think the other thing to bear in mind, and, and this is true, there's a general truth to what I'm about to say, which is there are strengths that you have as the incumbent that you shouldn't forget. So in the beer business, the scale that we had enabled us to have more consistency in our production process uh, because we could we could buy and scale, we could control volumes, and, and that's very hard for the craft guys to do. And, and so we needed to remember that we actually had an advantage competing against those guys where they were strong. And we had to be completely open to the idea that that may, in fact, take some, some shelf space from us. But on the other hand, we were also a, a, a 10.5% and or 11% share player as a company overall. And so I didn't worry too much about taking our own volume. I thought there was plenty of volume in the rest of the market uh, to try to grow. And, and frankly, that was a mindset I tried to communicate to folks so they wouldn't be worried about 
uh, losing some of our own volume elsewhere. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, right? You're either going to buy to scale, which some of these startups are doing, right? If you look at some of the disruptors, like even Airbnb buying luxury retreats or Uber, you know, uh, starting things to drive, you know, buying traditional businesses and not relying on the don't own anything mantra anymore. So you buy to scale versus someone like you kind of leveraging to scale. What's what's a one hour run in a 24 hour period of this craft beer? Even if we just capture a little bit, we're doing something, right? Right. And, and frankly, you're also making life just a little bit more difficult for them. And you're, you're taking up shelf space that might otherwise be available for them. And, and I think that you can also, you know, in our case, we used some of the same marketing ideas as a big brewer uh, and translated them into what they might be appropriate for for a smaller one. And, you know, using more of our sales force to go to the right on-premise accounts where we had national reach to be able to do that. And, and the craft brewers generally didn't. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I, you know, I often talk uh, as one of the topics that that I that I, you know, am passionate about is just sort of the future of selling and what that looks like. And I think people miss that in the fact that a lot of these legacy companies, larger, have been in business more than ten years, right? Because they just don't have that uh, kind of ability to be quite as nimble um, as you were just saying. And then they forget about the legacy advantage that they actually have with some of the infrastructure they have in place. And I, I, like you, do not just mean technical infrastructure. I mean the sales force. I mean their marketing, their brand, their you know net promoter scores, the you know knowledge of them in the market, their loyalty from customers, you know, all those things that the small uh, disruptors are, are starving to get their hands on. So you kind of have this supply side versus demand side disruption happening. Right. And you have to be, you have to remember and be careful to use the strengths that you have. And, you know, the, the strategic game boarding kind of thing goes along the lines of, if you were them, what would you be worried about? So if you were an online travel agency, what would you be worried about the, the hotel companies doing? Well, you know, we still had control and influence over the on-property experience. So why not make sure that if you book through us or if you're a member of our loyalty program, your on-property experience will be better than for people who go and come through uh, an OTA. Uh, and, and I think that, that that basic level of understanding what you're good at is, is really important. The other thing, just as it relates more specifically to sales is, and it goes back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, Tiffany, and that is this interplay between you know, the digital technology new side and the you know, human, how we've done things old side. And you know, technology can help you know who to call on, you know, what someone might want, what to sell, what they may want, but it's the old skills that inspire people, that build trust, and that close the sale. And you really need to have both, in either case, as the incumbent or the disruptor, ultimately to succeed. Yeah, and this has just been so fantastic. You know, I, I, I think there is so much value, and hopefully those listening to this podcast you know, rarely do you get to speak to somebody who has been in the middle of the tornado of this disruption with somebody like an Airbnb um, on on the side of hospitality and hotel, and then also just in the craft uh, beer market. You know, too. And then and then I you know I'd like to round out with just what you see from some of these smaller players using. Uh, some of these new technologies, uh, uh, you know, in the athletic market, and you have many sort of these, these athletic apparel companies now calling themselves technology companies, right? And really pivoting towards apps and sensors in shoes and clothes and capturing all that data and trying to get closer with their consumers. What, what do you think about what's going on there? 
Well, look, I, mean, I think with respect to you know Nike and that, which is my relevant experience here, and I spent seven years at Nike and, and ran Europe, Middle East, and Africa for them, and and was on the board of Oakley for a while. You know, in, in any business that that lends itself towards technology in a platform, you either want to be small and agile, or you want to be the biggest, and you know both have an advantage. And I think that uh, there will continue to be just as with the craft brewers smaller brands with new ideas or with a very targeted focus uh, in the athletic apparel and, and footwear businesses. But that's also been true for some time. I do think that uh, internet access and, and new ways of reaching consumers through through social media have, have eroded some of those barriers even more. But in the end, I think you know Nike's incessant focus on staying current, on innovation, and on understanding what technology might do to the business, I think makes them pretty formidable even in, uh, in a more digital world. And I remember back, I was running Nike.com actually uh, at, at around the year 2000 in 1999. And at that point, um, you know, what I finally concluded was, you know what, we have a huge advantage because the retailers, when, you, when it comes right down to it, aren't actually doing us any favors. And so if we're now interacting directly with consumers, with athletes, that's only going to help us over time. And I think that is, in fact, how this has played out in the ensuing years. Well, this is just fantastic, Fritz. I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us on the What's Next podcast. And I'm super excited for everybody to, to learn about you and the book, The Disruptor's Feast. I think it's a great and unique perspective on all the trends that we've just been talking about. So it has been my pleasure, and I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Tiffany. It's been great. And I'm, I've learned quite a bit from you as well. Wow, that was a great podcast with Fritz Van Passion. He just brought so much information, great insights and nuggets on disruption. It's rare that you get an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who was a CEO of a global brand that was right in the middle of massive disruption from somebody like an Airbnb when he was with Starwood. So his insights on how to manage teams, communicate a new vision, respond to disruption, you know, really thinking uh, about how to get his team and entire organization of 250,000 employees across, you know, 100 plus countries around the world uh, to move towards what they needed to do in response to it was just fascinating. I think he came up with three really great kinds of barriers of change uh, and why people don't embrace it. One was self-interest. The second one was cognitive bias change, gives them this sort of blindness around what's what's on the other side of the corner. The third was process and metrics, which I'm a firm believer. If you don't have the right process in place and the metric in place, you're not going to get anybody to change the way they're doing things. So it was really awesome to get his views on how to embrace change, new ways of selling, new ways of positioning a brand, and redefining what it means to get things done fantastic can't wait to have fritz back don't forget to subscribe tell your friends give me a review all appreciated thanks a lot have a great day